I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this episode, I'm joined by ex-Olympian Jack Green, who specialised in the 400-metre hurdles and represented Team GB in the 2012 and 2016 Games. Jack retired at 28 and now spends his time involved in workplace well-being, mental health and coaching. After being diagnosed with depression, anxiety, bipolar tendencies, and at one point being considered a risk to his own life, Jack has faced not only the physical battle of high-performance sport, but the mental impact too. In this conversation, we dig into all of that and also uncover why goal-setting should be hard and the cost involved in achieving your ambitions. Enjoy! Jack, hi and welcome to Diary of a CLO. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, thank you. Yeah, really pleased to be here. Good stuff. It's great to have you here. And just for a little bit of context for those who will be listening to this episode, and for those who don't know you, you specialised in the 400 metre hurdles and 400 metre relay for Team GB in the 2012 and 2016 Olympic Games. You then retired at the age of 28, and your world is now very much workplace well-being, mental health and coaching and we can kind of dig into all of that good stuff um, as we go but to start us off because I know there's so much to cover in this episode I'd love to hear about what led you to athletics and ultimately how did you end up as an Olympic athlete? Yeah that's a that's a great question I quite like going back and thinking about this because it's a long time ago now but very pure I had no interest in sport whatsoever so I have a cousin who's a month younger than me who he love sport always had from from day one whereas i liked animals and dinosaurs so i wanted to be a zookeeper or an archaeologist that was my thing still pretty much that like a lot of us i went to primary school tried out sports i ran down a grass track to make my primary school district sports team beat everyone by a country mile and thought oh quite good at this i quite like being told i'm good at something and winning things and Yeah, from the age of seven, then I decided I was going to be an Olympic athlete. And I was writing stories from the age of seven about winning the 100 meters at the Olympics. And pretty much every decision, every choice I made from seven years old was how do I go to an Olympic Games? That's quite a young age to decide that that's my goal as well. And was there any, I've heard Tyson Fury talk about this in the past around aiming for a goal. And then when you get to a goal, there's almost like a dip in the emotion around it because you've achieved it and it's kind of thinking about what's next and that's quite a long I mean I'm not sure how old you were when you first became an Olympic athlete but from the age of seven to let's say 18. Yeah I went professional at 18 and first Olympics was 20 I was 20 years old. Yeah and that's quite a long time to be aiming towards something so how, how did it feel when you finally got there and was there that dip in emotion as well? See I think this is something that isn't spoken about much within obviously within a sporting context as I will will give it to but yeah any goal and my whole life was about making Olympic Games that's what everything was about seven years old every decision that I ever made from that day onwards and actually achieved it quite young compared to you know you average between the age of 28 and 32 that's where you peak I was professional just turned professional 18 19 went to my first world championship straight away Olympics uh, when I was 20 and it's a London Olympics so it's a home Olympics as well so it's even bigger it felt like I fell off a cliff to be honest when you leave that games especially because you have the whole run-up to it you're focusing on that but you have a holding camp you have a training camp you're there for you're in a couple of months where you are literally waited on hand and foot you then go into the village 
you know, you've had to cook your own meals, you're getting massage, you get treatment, everything. You are the star of the show, of your show. And then the amazing thing is you, you compete at Olympics, whether it's good or bad. As soon as it's finished, it's like, okay, see you later. And I got a train back home from Stratford. I went back to Kent. I was living and training in Bath at the time, but I'm from Kent. So I got a 50-minute train back to my hometown. And that was it, just with my bags. That's absolutely huge for anyone in terms of the biggest moment of your life, emotionally, physically, everything. And then the next day, it's like, okay, see you later. Off you go. I was 20 years old. I didn't know how to deal with that. And I don't, I don't think that matters whether you're very successful in those championships or, or whatever it is, or if you're not by your own standards, you'd still have to deal with that drop off. I think England, I'm a big rugby fan, just had the, the World Cup and they were in training in camps and training and preparation for five months up until that World Cup. Then you're at the World Cup and then it's all right, go back to your club, go back home. Of course, there's going to be a dropout. And we've seen that Owen Farrell, who's captain of England, won't be playing in the Six Nations this year. And this is one of the best players in the world who's also captain, who's kind of known for being incredibly stoic, stubborn, all these very masculine things. And he said, no, I need a drop off. And a lot of it will be just because you can't have such a high and then expect to carry on. Do you think part of it as well is actually made worse potentially if you don't achieve a medal or you don't win the award or you don't win a cup or you don't, I guess, place first in something? Does it then amplify that sense of loss, I suppose, that you, that you might be feeling? I think especially when it's a major championships, because it's four years until you get another shot at it. And at a London Olympics, you're never going to get another shot as an athlete at another home Olympics. So timing is, is such an important thing. But yeah, of course, if you've done well, it's, it's crest of a wave and there's still noise around you. There's still excitement around you in some capacity. And that will fizzle out, as it does, unless you continue to be incredibly successful every single day, which isn't sustainable and isn't possible. It's not human. But yeah, in my case, I fell in the hurdles at 20 years old. I was ranked sixth in the world. I fell in the semi-final and didn't make the final. And then we finished fourth in the relay. I missed a medal by 0.13 of a second. Yeah, it just felt like yeah the end of my world at that point, which is really sad because I was still I was ranked sixth in the world at 20 years old. and. I'd come forth at Olympics in front of a home crowd. I should have gone on to do anything and everything. And that's what essentially was being written about me. But I actually felt like everything had just collapsed around me because of that. Mm. And did you seek any support or help or, or coaching around how to deal with that at the time? Because like you say, you were very young, potentially a lot of development still left to do emotionally, uh, potentially. What was your support network like at the time? I uh, didn't particularly, obviously had friends and family, very fortunate to have that, but you leave the championships and hopefully it's improved now. I haven't seen it improve, but hopefully it has. And I do think we're becoming far more aware in how we support people more holistically and, and well-being and as human beings. But yeah, it was, as I said, just off on a train and off you go and report into training in a month's time after your break and carry on. And there wasn't any kind of decompression moment or any support in that other than being aware of it yourself. As you said, I, I was 20 years old. I had a lack of emotional intelligence, had a lack of, of experience. I'd also had a lack of failure at that point. I'd been incredibly successful very quickly. And yet, for me, that felt like the biggest failure in the world, those Olympics. And I had to learn to deal with that. And it's something I wasn't dealing very well with. I also didn't believe mental health existed. I thought it was an excuse for people who weren't successful or weren't going to be successful one day. I thought it was just like, oh, yeah, I'm just weak. I'm just soft. 
So at no point did I think, well, maybe I need to think about my mental health because I just thought it was kind of concrete. It's kind of given. I'm naturally uh, gifted, talented, whatever words you want to use. And I'm going to go on and be great. So mental health isn't isn't a problem. But actually, I was really struggling in that time. Mm, a couple of things there that would be really good to pick up on. And the first one, or this actually they will maybe pick up on this in the second instance, is around failure. But then also around this the concept of mental health, because obviously it is a real thing. It is something that, you know, should be taken very seriously. And unfortunately, now seems to be the case. But you were diagnosed with mental health disorders around that time as well. So those things that you were experiencing would be very tough for anyone who, you know, in any normal situation. But then to throw in mental health disorders into the mix as well, it must have been quite difficult to, I guess, balance out that perception of mental health isn't important. It doesn't really exist. It's all of a bit of a fluffy thing to then actually being diagnosed with something and then having to deal with that as well yeah it took a long time for me to to be diagnosed and a lot of that was because I didn't have awareness of it so it wasn't even an acceptance piece it was just that I wasn't aware because I didn't believe it existed so I went back into training I just wasn't performing very well I felt awful I I didn't want to to step on the track I didn't want to live at that point which is incredibly sad when yeah I was voted the most talented sports person of a generation in Britain at that point and yet I didn't want to be around and it took nine months until I I kind of broke down and, and unfortunately that's how it has to be for a lot of people that you get to the point of breaking that then you go right here's an issue that I'm now going to share or, or or do something about and I tried to compete that season that following season I flew out to Qatar for my first race in the Diamond League out there I got to the uh, what hurdle was it hurdle four or six or hurdle six I think and so just over halfway and just stopped just didn't want to be there and it was after that that I essentially broke down and, and and said, I'm, I'm really struggling. And I knew I'd been struggling because all the results I was getting were saying I was struggling in training. I couldn't finish sessions and all my feelings. But I was changing everything else in my life. So I was like, let's move into a house I can't afford. I've never, we, I, I come from a single parent family, living in council flats and things. So I've never had a, a nice house or even my own house. I was like, right, let's move into a house I can't afford. Let's get a car that it's nice. Let's change all these materialistic things. Because maybe one of those things will just click and I'll feel better. I'll change my nutrition. I'll change what time I train at. All these different things. I thought there's just one ball that I've dropped that I'm not juggling. If I get that back, I'll go back to being the old Jack. That ball I dropped was obviously my own mental health, but I couldn't see it. So it wasn't until I, I broke down. I remember saying to my coach at the time, like, I just don't even want to be here, let alone run around, which was hard. And then, yeah, I was then diagnosed uh, later that day with depression, bipolar tendencies, generalized anxiety disorder, and I was considered a threat to my own life. So I had to go to the Priory at that point and get some support from a psychiatrist, which I was 20 years old. <laughs> 2020 I probably just turned 21 if I remember rightly yeah really really quite sad actually and a huge moment to actually say I imagine those words out loud to someone else that you know I need help or whatever the words would have been to your coach and to then be in a position where is part of it around you didn't because you didn't believe that mental health could be an issue or was something that you were struggling with was there a sense of relief in being diagnosed with anything or would that come further down the line I think there was because it was an answer to why I felt how I felt and it kind of gave me a journey a pathway to potentially fixing that I'm, I'm a sports person it's it's always quite practical and obvious what we can do how we move forward here's a training plan here's what we do how here's how we improve that is literally the game and at that point I didn't know what was wrong so I didn't know how to fix it 
and I'm very much a fixer. Mental health isn't for fixing, it's for managing. It's something you and I have talked about before. But at that point, I felt like, brilliant, I've got direction now. And also the relief of, okay, I can actually say to people, this is what's wrong, rather than I don't really know, I'm just not right. Yeah, really interesting time in my life, quite frankly. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, and a lot to deal with, like you say, at such a young age as well. And I suppose going back a step to what you were speaking about before in terms of you'd been so successful up until that point and you'd not really had to deal with failure. And it's something we speak a lot about in, in the learning and development space around improving through failure and that's the only way you necessarily can learn is if you fail at something what part do you think failure had in changing the way that you could perform or could show up at that time so what's interesting with this is talk about fear of failure changing language let's turn it into learning right but i still have a fear of failure i still find it really difficult i'd dealt with and overcame a lot of adversity as a young person as a child but I hadn't dealt with failure or long-term failure so my sporting career was kind of my that was my nice place that was the thing I was good at it's the thing I was comfortable doing it's the thing that gave me rewards and so on that's the thing that hadn't let me down and then obviously when we got to Olympics actually that's the thing that had the rest of my life yeah there might have been some adversity I always had the running and that was my identity and I was Jack the athlete so when that kind of gave up on me and didn't go as I expected it to and I had this huge thing of control and feeling the world should be more than fair to me because I've been blessed with disability and so on and so forth so I just had high expectations of things I couldn't control and then I had no experience of failing in a sporting arena as well as in the public eye as well and and with pressure and expectations and various pieces so for me the problem that I had and I work with my athletes now I coach sort of how I coach and we can talk about that later I coach in in business and both in, in business and sports but the big piece for me is we talk about comfort zones and everyone loves to spout this thing around you can't grow in your comfort zone You've got to take yourself out of it. But the problem is, if you don't have a comfort zone, you don't want to step out of it. And when something goes wrong, if you have stepped out, if you don't have that comfort zone, you've got nowhere to go back to. So you're less likely to take risks. I am a risk averse person. I don't like taking risks. I like to know all the information. I like control before I do something. I like to know there's a fairly high chance it's going to be successful. Otherwise, I won't do it. But if I have a support network, that says, it's okay, because if that goes wrong, I've got you, you're not on your own, I'm more likely to go and take that risk. So that's where I think there needs to be more definition around or explanation anyway, around comfort zones of, well, I need a nice support network, nice, comfortable area that I know's got me so that I can go out there and, and take risks and do what I want. Because I would always put myself out there in terms of a sporting aspect, but I was performing with high anxiety, high stress, because I had a fear of failure. And it was all or nothing, because I didn't believe I had anything I could go back to. There's obviously a balance here, because you do also need to do that burn the boats bit of, right, you can't go back, let's 100% go to this. But I am still, and always will be, until proven otherwise, a huge advocate for supporting people to then take those risks rather than forcing them into it. Yeah, it's a really interesting view of what a comfort zone is, because I suppose it is something that is conventionally thought of as an individual personal thing, but actually extends, as you say, outside of that to what networks or support do you have around you that can help shift you out of that. So yeah, really interesting framing of, of what that means there. 
But I think also something that you're you're speaking about there, there's, there's almost an interesting, I suppose, polarity between this idea of high performance and being able to perform and, and show up and be the best in your field in order to get to an Olympic Games. And then this idea of positive mental health or being being okay or being positive that goes alongside that. And I think this is something you've, you've potentially spoken about previously, but why do you think that is that there's almost like that view of, oh, you're performing well, you're doing well, you're successful, you must be okay? Yeah, and I've talked about that a lot, especially when I was young, I definitely struggled with anxiety and very much perfectionist, which then impacted my mental health when I was young. It wasn't really picked up because I was performing all the time and performing well. So it was kind of like, right, these two things, they're not connected in any way. So Jack must be fine. Whereas I'm a big advocate for you have to thrive personally to thrive professionally. That doesn't mean that you can't be unwell and still perform. Of course you can. It's just not sustainable. Whereas I want sustainable excellence, right? The people who are the best in the world at what they do can keep doing it. The best people in the world aren't the ones that do it once and then burn out and disappear. So for me, it's looking at, at that piece of, well, how do we actually bring sustainable excellence? How do we connect well-being and, and performance and understand that well-being and health and mindset are the foundation to you to performing on the, the big stage? And, and the fact that anything personally will come and affect you professionally, no matter how well you manage to keep it at the door, no matter for how long you will keep it at the door, it will creep it. You might be fantastic. I'm hugely resilient. I have a work capacity that cannot be matched by pretty much anyone I've ever met. But that doesn't mean that lasts forever. And that's why I struggled for such a long time and still performed before then having to break to do something about it. And that's kind of like the same with burnout. Is Burnout is where we keep emptying the tank. And some people look great at it. But one day they won't be so great at it because they're not recovering. They're not, they're not helping themselves. And that's where I really am a big advocate for that well-being being the foundation of high performance and how do we connect the two. And I think you said something there around positive mental health as well. And I think something that needs to be understood is, I'm a big advocate for this in sport, is I'm not trying to make sport healthy. I'm not trying to make elite performance healthy because it's not. If you are going to go and do something that no one has ever done, you will have to do something that isn't nice. You might not be very kind to yourself at some points. And that's okay. We just don't want that all the time. And I think the problem that we have with well-being is everyone thinks it has to be nice, it has to be fluffy. So when we talk, take from a fear of failure point, we think, oh, failing must be enjoyable, must be nice. It's not enjoyable. It's not nice. But if we accept that and know that, we can then make the result of it nice. And I think too often within well-being, particularly workplace well-being, we're trying to make things easy. We don't need easier. We just need to be better at dealing with it. And that's how I look at it with my athletes is today's going to be a tough day, but I'm here to support you. You trust me that I'm putting these plans in place and, and supporting you because this is what we need to do. I'm not saying we're going to take you to the well and destroy you every day because I, I don't believe in, in that. Some coaches do, but I don't. But you will have to do it at some point. Whereas I do think in, in our society within well-being, it's almost trying to avoid the difficult and avoid the hard rather than, yeah work out how we we manage it and deal with it better mm. there's a lot of what you're saying there that reminds me of i've spoken to a lot of co-founders or founders or entrepreneurs in the past who have that like it's almost like that that same kind of drive and passion to do something and it's not going to be easy it's really hard to kind of to get a business off the ground and to make it successful and it's that same type of mentality around how do you do that in a way that is sustainable and is not going to be at the detriment of you and your personal life and lead you to burnout? Because it's not something that can be consistent, you know, for, for long periods of time. So 
yeah, there's, it, it resonates with a lot of different conversations I've had as well. There will always be something that has to give. Mm. If I put more energy into one thing, it's going to take from something else because you just it's not possible to just increase your capacity overnight. I, I'd love to be a, a founder one day in something. I've worked in startups for the last how many years. But I know it's tough and that's okay. I'm signing up to that. And I think where people go wrong is the same with goal setting, with start of the year goal setting. People just go, well, I want to get to here. But they don't actually know what that will cost. And it's only when they start on that journey that they go, mm, I'm not prepared to pay that price, that we get the issue. Whereas I knew full well, when I signed up to be an athlete, the cost was going to be an element of me, the cost was going to be my social life, my financial well being, I didn't earn much as an athlete, you never do in the track and field. But I was okay with that, because the goal was greater than the cost. Where I retired at 28 is because that shifted, is because I was giving up too much and not getting much back. And I think that needs to be something that we all think about is, hold on, is this worth it? It's kind of the juice and the squeeze. Am I getting enough juice for the squeezing I'm doing? Then you'll know if you really want to do it or not. Yeah, I think that's it's a really interesting point around goal setting as well and thinking about what that cost would be to achieve a goal. And part of that is potentially thinking quite practically and breaking goals down to, I guess, the smallest common denominator that you probably could to work out what the impact is going to be on you on what you do and, and how you do it. And that's not necessarily something I've seen spoken about in goal setting before. It's always, like you say, thinking about what's what's the end state, not necessarily what are all those kind of touch points along the way that are going to have an impact on everything around you as well. Yeah. And we like to think really positively about them, which is lovely. But positivity has is not always the most realistic thing right for planning that's best case scenario actually the most successful people with goal setting are those that look at all the potential barriers and obstacles that are going to come in the way so they'll say right i want to get to here okay tell me everything that might go wrong on that journey and once you identify all those things you can put a plan in place because inevitably one or more of them will happen but the people that really struggle are those that are really positive saying, oh, well, we're going to achieve this in a year because we're amazing and we're great. And it's just going to be really straight up there, done. Then one of the obstacles comes and they go, oh, we didn't plan for this. And I don't like it. So, well, we'll stop here. Whereas the people who are able to realistically say, well, these are the possible barriers that will come. If this barrier comes, this is how we're going to deal with it. Or at least we just knew this might happen. They're able to keep moving forward. It's not a shock. It's not a surprise. We talk about, you can talk about change. You can talk about bad things. If I said to you, as a human being, will you have a bad day? You'd go, obviously, Jack, that's just going to happen. So then why are you shocked or surprised when it does? And it's because a lot of us kind of go into this positive thinking bit, which isn't that helpful of just, well, everything's going to be great and wonderful. It's not realistic. It's not part. It's not how human beings work. So, yeah, there's another rant for you. Uh, there'll be plenty of them as we go through. Do you think, though, that there's almost an element of people viewing realism and that kind of realistic perspective of what could go wrong, what's the risk, as a negative thing rather than it being, in the longer run, positive? 100%. I get that. I get that all the time. I'm actually quite a, a positive. I believe I believe in myself. I believe in people I work with, whoever it might be, believe we can achieve great things. But I'm also realistic that because of my experiences, there's not going to be smooth sailing, not going to be easy. And sometimes it can be seen as, well, why are you pushing back on that? Because can't we just be positive and we, we will achieve this? And I'm not saying we can't. I just want to be prepared. 
and I want to make sure that we do get there no matter what. So yeah, you're 100% right. It happens a lot. I come from the school of thinking. I'm very fortunate when I lived in Florida for training to work with some of the best mental conditioning coaches in the world who are working in the MBA, the MLB. They're just incredible people. And one of the school of thoughts from one of one of the coaches there who's, who's unfortunately passed away, but Trevor Moad, and you can find his books and so on. He talked about neutral thinking, that positive thinking is just can be a bit wishy-washy and not prepare you for what might happen. Negative thinking we know is negative. It's not particularly going to help us in any way. So that's just over there. But neutral thinking is like the amber light, red, amber, green. It's the amber light. It allows us space and time to take our emotions out of any decisions, get all the information, the facts, and then decide what we want to do about it instead of that emotional kind of fight, flight, response where we just go well i'm going to be reactive sometimes your reaction is the correct decision but you didn't have any control over it because it just happened whereas what we want to do is neutrally ask ourselves okay what's the information what's the real fact here now what do i want to do about it and if you are someone like me who likes control it's my way of being able to control things i can't control because the only thing i can control is my response to something Mm. so i'm putting myself in a powerful position and this isn't easy it takes time. And there's sometimes I will just emotionally react. I have a newborn at, at home. I don't sleep much, right? So my capacity is very short that I will react to things at the moment that I might not have before. But if I can bring some awareness to myself of, okay, this has happened. What do I want to do about it? Rather than just bang, here we go. Because success when you are reactive is not repeatable. Because success when you're reactive is exactly that. It's just reactive. It's impulsive. You don't know how or why it happened. So we can't repeat it. Whereas if we're able to get facts and information, that's where we can continue to be successful. And that's that's where I want to be, right? I want to be trying to win all the time and every day, not when it sometimes happens for me because of fortune or luck. It sounds like common sense when you say it out loud, Jack. <laughs> but it's really not easy. Anything I talk about today, I don't do perfectly well. <laughs> and I think that's the same for anyone because, yeah, going back to that thing, and I'll always go back to it, you're a human being. So you are going to have times where you get things wrong, things go wrong, you do things you might not be particularly happy with at the time or not be proud of at the time. But if we can most of the time put ourselves in those better positions, then we're doing all right. Mm, it's interesting that you you mentioned obviously your, your newborn at home and how that's impacting the way that you can show up and maybe or maybe unintentionally show up in, in some situations and and how do people kind of make space for the fact that someone might not be showing up as or it might not ever be able to show up as a hundred percent of their performance ability if that makes sense so what you know what's going on in the world around them how do they how do you balance everything in work in life in whatever situation is you, you find yourselves in and I think there's it comes back to that idea of you being a human and what's going on in, in the world around you I think it links back into that acceptance piece of things will happen and that's okay we can't like everything can't have everything perfect that's fine it's not easy to deal with that I still sure I still want everything to go well whatever but For me, the big thing I talk about on this is effort as a measure rather than results. So you might only have 60% in the tank because like me, you've got a four-month-old who's who's decided sleep is optional in the last couple of weeks. So I've got probably less than 60% in the tank. But one thing I can't negotiate on is giving 100% of that 60 or 100% of whatever I've got. That's the one thing I I can control at this point. Now, it might not be my best work. But if I keep showing up with that 100% intent and commitment to myself, my craft, whatever it might be, eventually compound kind of work, I will be successful. 
because that also when I'm at 100%, cool, let's go. I'm not missing any days. I might not be great, but I'm not missing any days. And it allows me to then become consistent and it allows me to then become successful. I worked with Olympic champions, world record holders. They weren't superstars every day, but they were committed and they showed up every day. There were days that I watched them or trained with them and I thought, you look awful. How are you Olympic champion? But they were always there. So that when the time came, they'd done this huge bulk of work when most people would have sat at home. So they'd already got ahead. Because getting up off your sofa gets you further ahead than the person who sat there. It might not be much, but it's something. And you keep doing that every day, you end up going far. And that was just an amazing lesson around effort being the measure, because effort allowed me to be a human being, talking about the human piece, because it understood that I was going to have ups and downs, whereas my results, when that was my measure, was very black and white. I was either successful or I wasn't. And that's great for short-term success and and really driving you forward. It doesn't get you long-term success because it's a very negative world to live in. Because even if you gave 100%, even if you did everything you could, things outside of your control affected you, you'd still be going, no, that's not good enough. And that's a really hard place to be when you actually can't do any more. How unfair is that? And that's how I used to work. And, and one of the many reasons why I struggled was because of that kind of mindset that I had. As we head, I suppose, towards the end of this conversation, I know you've mentioned coaching and you've mentioned my athletes previously before as well. Can you explain a little bit more about what you do and how you support other athletes or other people in general? Yeah, I kind of just ended up in the this performance world, my obsession with mindset and performance. And I just love it. And, and I get far more enjoyment from helping other people than I ever did from my own career, which is strange. It's just how I am. And always wanted to help people and always wanted to see them grow. So I coach, I, I don't coach as much in terms of uh, in track and field and sport as much as I used to, just because life and there's only so much I can do. And unfortunately, uh, sports coaching doesn't pay very well and I've got to support my family. But had an athlete go to the last Olympics, also became world champion, got lots of British champions I work with, work with every professional sport you can think of so far helping them with speed and movement and I'm no better a coach in terms of my knowledge or experience than anyone else there's a lot of better coaches out there than me I was very fortunate to work with two of the best that have ever lived so I've, I've picked up a lot from them but there are lots of better coaches than me in terms of the technical or whatever it might be but I care about my people and that's what sets me apart so I understand that they are a human being 24 hours a day so I value them for that and that allows me to adjust their programming and so on because I can see them and I can understand if there's stresses. I can understand if they've only got 60% in the tank and I can meet them where they are and make sure that they continue to perform every single day rather than pushing them and destroying them when they're struggling. That means then we get longer term injuries, whatever that might be. But also they work really hard for me because I care about them and their family. So they're bought in. And buy-in is a huge part of training. You, you can do the, the training that actually isn't scientifically correct but if you believe you're doing the right thing and you believe in the person that's doing it with you or or telling you to do it it will probably pay off and I've seen that happen so often coaches that really not very good but their athletes are sensational and it's because of the relationship they have and also my athletes will then work harder and do the sessions better anyway because they trust me and they care about me the same way I trust and care about them it's simple as when your athletes turn up asking them how they are Ask them how family are and being able to have those very open conversations to then learn about them and understand them and, and personalize everything, make it so individual that you are creating the best environment and training program and support 
for that one person rather than I've got 100 people, let's give them all the same thing and two of them will do well. And no one will then pick up on the fact that 98 of them did badly because I've got two great superstars. That's not a good coach. That's just... I can get that online somewhere. I don't I don't need a human for that. And then obviously I, I do some business coaching as well. So kind of mindset performance stuff, working with whether it's SaaS, whether it's sales recruitment, whether it's leaders, anyone really who just wants to start thinking a bit differently and, and wants to strive to either be healthy, perform or both. Yeah, which I find quite enjoyable. But obviously sports is the world that I come from. Do you think there's still a hesitancy within businesses that you potentially work with, or maybe not the ones you work with because they're probably quite forward thinking, but in general within the workplace, there's a hesitancy around treating people as humans and wanting to build that human connection? Or do you think we're definitely headed in the right direction and we've made kind of positive gains over the past however many years? Uh, It's a great question. So hesitancy, no and yes. So no in terms of I think people want to do it but they don't know how, or they don't know what well-being or holistic really means in terms of performance, because we've still got that kind of stigma around well-being of it being separate, soft and fluffy. And well, I don't want to give my people time off, or I don't want to do this, because that will impact their performance in a negative way instead of seeing it the other, because we don't, we do have enough evidence, but it's not been communicated. And we've got to overcome the stigma of what well-being and, and holistic health is. So hesitancy in terms of that but when people really start to understand it none at all but also that's where someone like me tends to do well because I'm saying it from a sporting context and when we talk about sports it's the pinnacle of performance so if I talk about it people tend to be like oh yeah we trust that that guy talking about it because he's done it compared to if typically you get someone in HR saying about this and they'll be like oh no you're just saying this because it's something you're interested in and you don't know any different oh this olympic athlete comes in it must be true we're still saying the same thing so yeah it's an interesting one and obviously there are some places doing better than others uh, some sectors doing better than others it's all improving but i do think awareness is greater and there's been amazing work of awareness charity social media everything but we're still kind of behind on education and i always say it from a point of I think everyone or the majority of people now would agree that mental health exists, mental health issues exist. Even people who aren't particularly into that will be like, okay, yeah, I agree it exists. It's over there somewhere because I've had so much awareness that I've been told it exists and there's examples. But as soon as the problem is on their front door, we go back into our old mindset of grow a pair, get on with it, typically British around all of this and that's because the education hasn't quite got up to the scale of what the awareness piece is and it's also more difficult because it's a bigger thing and requires a lot more engagement various other pieces something that you know your listeners will be struggling with all the time when it comes to this but yeah that's where i do think we are within society great awareness but still not quite there the understanding Mm. it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years particularly with the influx of new technologies and and AI coming onto the scene and how that might impact people and the way that they are able to show up as the best version or their authentic version of themselves in the workplace Jack I know that we could probably carry on talking for ages but just before we wrap up what piece of advice have you been given in the past that you often find yourself recounting or sharing again with other people that you've you like to kind of keep the ball rolling on i've got so many i think i've said i think i've given them all away during this anyway there's one thing one kind of lesson i was taught when i was out in florida i did some work with the navy seals over there and it was how they viewed conflict 
So this will tie in quite nicely on the fear of failure piece. But it's how do they view conflict? And they ask themselves this question. It's C or T. stands for challenge or threat. Because when you are feeling threatened, it's all negative. You go very much into that danger piece, fight, flight, freeze. That's what you're going to do. There's no clarity. You're either going to run headfirst into something without a plan or you're going to run away from it. If we view everything in life, like a lot of us do, view everything in life as a threat, we're going to have a really poor experience and not be as successful as we want to be or as enjoy life as we want to. If we can change our mindset to see everything as a challenge, and I can feel the weight just drop off my shoulders when I say challenge rather than threat, it allows us to get into that neutral piece and be like, I'm just being tested here to see what I'm capable of doing, see what I could do, who I can be. Actually, it's a bit more like a game. And if we can start to view that big board meeting, that whatever it might be as, I'm just being challenged here, that's where we start to get some, actually, a bit of enjoyment and some success. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's a lot easier way to look at life than always feeling threatened and then having to be reactive. So challenge or threat, C or T, um, is something that I've taken and used both in a sporting capacity on a start line of, of World Championships, Olympics, but also in my day-to-day life as well. Brilliant. Well, what a great way to end this episode on it. I really appreciate you sharing so openly, Jack, and thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. This podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.